Peace. Welcome to another episode of Bootstraps. I'm your host, Anefriesian. For those of you who are new to the podcast, please do me a favor and go ahead and subscribe. And if you're on Instagram, please give us a follow over at Bootstraps Podcast. So today's episode is uh, another great and enlightening conversation with an amazing brother who's out here doing things in the world and with his career um, that I find to be quite inspiring that I think you're going to be able to learn a lot from. It's an interesting story of how every individual is multifaceted and has a lot of dimensions. And what comes to life in Adler's story is a young boy who was born to Haitian immigrant parents, but he happened to be born in Montreal. And then when he was still really young, moved to upstate New York or White Plains just outside of the city of New York. And he was really caught between multiple cultures that all existed within his household and within him in particular. You know, he was, he was black, he was Canadian, he was also Haitian, and then he was American, trying to figure out how to move. And he wasn't really like the white kids he went to school with, but he also wasn't like the black kids he went to school with, you know, speaking French and just coming from a di- different background, a different culture. So there's a lot that he had to learn to, to figure out within himself and how to navigate through this world. And um, it's an inspiring story of hard work. It's an inspiring story of failure because failure is not a defining characteristic. You know, it's, a, it's an opportunity for growth and to learn if you um, focus and ultimately ends up being an inspiring story of triumph and great success. So I won't belabor the point. Let's get into it. Peace, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Bootstraps. Um, brother, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to everyone? Yeah, my name is Adler Mervey. Uh, I am currently a client partner at Twitter um, and serving some of our large advertisers and helping to grow their business through advertising on Twitter. Uh, yeah, that's that's uh, that's me. Okay, so what, uh, client partner at Twitter, like what, what does that... What does that mean for folks who may not be familiar with that? Yeah, it's a combination. I'd say it's a combination of uh, sales, uh, account management, and some sort of uh, some, some marketing and consulting there. So basically, um, large advertisers, um, their goal is to certainly reach as many people as possible and share the message of their products and services. And so my role is I manage a few large accounts, some of the largest advertisers, and help them grow their business uh, by doing marketing and advertising on the platform. And so it's my job to make sure that I'm fully up to speed on their business and some of the key initiatives in their business and in their marketing mix, and to also make sure that they're up to speed on Twitter and all the various opportunities to help their business and their marketing efforts, and then put the two together to grow Twitter's business with those advertisers. So at the end of the day, I'm judged by my ability to uh, drive revenue and grow revenue with my clients. Gotcha. So basically, you help people figure out how they can use Twitter, people, advertisers, companies who are trying to make money, Mm -hmm. you help them figure out how to use Twitter to make money. Yep, you got it. That's what's up. Who are who are some of the uh, who are some of the clients that you work with, bro? Yes, yeah, so I currently serve the auto vertical. So, uh, and I'm based in LA. So, my clients are um, automakers who are based in Asia. So, I've got Toyota, I've got Lexus, and Mazda. <laughs> those are those are not uh, those are not small accounts. At least <laughs> at least from my estimation. I mean, you know, I only time I see commercials is when I'm watching live sports and. Every time I'm watching a game, one of those brands is I'm being hit with one of their commercials. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Toyota is historically always one of the largest advertisers. I mean, I think, you know, they're always in that top two or three world's biggest automakers. So they got a lot to say and a lot to make sure you know about. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. So uh, it sounds like, it sounds like, would it be safe to say you're enjoying, you know, the, the work that you do? Yeah. I think, um, you know, this is a good space that for me, I think helps to kind of marry a lot of the things I'm interested and curious about and good at uh, with something that helps me, uh, you know, pay the bills and, and uh, stock some money away. Right. And I think, you know, just a quick little plug, you know, or, you know, from my perspective, right quick, you know, you, you get one gets paid or you make money based upon being really good at something. Yeah. Whether it's, you're going to be the person who uh, sells it yourself Mm -hmm. and you can make it better than anyone else, or it's a particular skill or service. And then someone's going to hire you to deliver that. So, you know, you, nothing in this life is free. So mm-hmm. make sure you, you know, figure out something to be really good at and then go, mm-hmm. go get your money. Sermon right there. <laughs> everyone's, everyone's. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Twitter life, man. Yeah. So you're, you're working at Twitter ever since you take you out of the L.A. office. Yep, yep. Um, what is, what is that? What is that like? I don't know if everyone really understands, you know, what it's like, you know, to, to work at one of these major tech companies. Um, so what was it like for you, you know, coming into work every day at Twitter in the LA office? Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because there's like two parts of that. There's like the, you know, working at Twitter and then there's the, uh, you know, doing it in LA. And, you know, I'm, I'm not from LA. I moved to LA uh, about two and a half years ago. I've been doing long distance uh, with my girlfriend at the time for a year and a half, moved out here, moved in together and we got married last year. So for me, LA Congrats. is, thank you, thank you. And so for me, LA is still is still kind of new, but you know it's also a place that I'm, I'm making my own and making home. And uh, I feel like I've, I've come to realize that you know I've always had some of the Cali LA vibe in me, and you know I'm sure you'd probably be the first to say good job for recognizing. But yeah, so it's <laughs> West West. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I still got love for the East Coast, right? You know what I mean? So I, I, you you won't hear the words LA is better than New York. I'll say, look, they both dope. And I'll leave it at that. Uh-huh. And that's the right, story. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, that, that's your story, but we know what's up. <laughs> uh, yeah, so there's the living in LA piece, and then uh, there's the, the, the work in, and working at tech and Twitter. And I think it's, it's interesting because there's a few different levels even to that, right? There's the space of working in the tech industry, which it's no secret that diversity and inclusion is a challenge. They got a lot of work to do, right? They're falling short in many ways. So there's that piece. Uh, There's the piece of uh, working at Twitter, which is even in the landscape of tech, uh, an interesting place because it kind of sits at this intersection of tech media and culture, right? It's certainly tech for sure in terms of its roots and its founding and leveraging software uh, and engineering capability to build products and that product is a media and communication tool, right? We, at Twitter, we like to say that we serve the public conversation. And so it's about people coming together to, uh, to talk, see, share, uh, engage around what's happening. And that speaks to that last piece around culture, right? Culture is what's happening, what's current, what's relevant. Uh, and it is no secret while, you know, Twitter is smaller than uh, a Google or Facebook, its impact, you could argue, is larger than any of them. Because of the fact that when something breaks, when something's happening, it's on Twitter. When, you know, there's a new trend, new hashtag, new news topic, you know, or even if you're watching something on TV, you're doing it on Twitter, you know, having the conversation with your peoples or even with the world. So there's that piece of like, you know, tech, media, and culture. And then the the reason why, you know, I started with the LA piece is that even within that, you know, for tech, everybody thinks about, Silicon Valley and the Bay Area. And then New York is another big place, which is usually the second biggest office for a lot of the tech companies. Uh, but tech does exist here in LA. It really much, you know, very much does. You know, there's this, you know, they call it Silicon Beach, if you will. Uh, now, it's not the office here isn't as big as San Francisco or New York. And it's focused on, you know, specific functions and, and industries. And so it's interesting because, like, I feel like I'm not in the guts of the sameness that I may feel if I was in Silicon Valley. Um, and so I get this mix of tech, but I get this LA lifestyle. 
um, that comes to life, but all, you know, while still trying to figure out being two and a half years into LA, what does my version of my community look like here, right? It's no secret that, you know, tech doesn't really have a bunch of diversity, but also the, one of the things that shocked me is that, you know, the, the percentage of, of, of black folk in LA County has continued to decrease and decline. And so it's, it's there are much fewer black people right. in LA as a percentage than New York or even in Chicago where I used to live too. So that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so a lot there's, going there's, on. Yeah, there's no, yeah, no, there's, there's, there's a whole lot. I, I mean, uh, there's so much that I can focus on there, but I'm, the, the black thing in particular, I just, I just thought there was being someone who was born and raised in LA and I, I no longer live in LA. I live in the town now. I'm up, mm-hmm. I'm up in the Bay living in Oakland, but you know, folks have been, black folks in particular have been heading out, you know, heading out to first it was like Rialto mm-hmm. and then, you know, like Riverside and then folks are going even further or farther, actually, excuse me, farther to Moreno Valley, mm-hmm. which is like the boonies. A gang of my kinfolk have moved from Harbor City out to Moreno Valley mm-hmm, and I love mm-hmm. them to death, but when I, when I make it all the way to LA, it's like, look, man, I'm I'm, I, I don't know if I could drive an hour and 15, <laughs> hour and a half out there just to be hot. Right, you know right, 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 hot right, out there right. too. That's the trick um, about LA. It's got like, it's one city with like five different climates. Yeah, yeah, that is what it is. And, you know, my favorite climate though, to bring it back to, you know, your situation, you know, Twitter, I've, I've had the, the benefit, the pleasure of visiting you at your office and man, you step outside and you are right on the beach true true i forgot to mention that you're right you're right you're right yeah i have to highlight our office is on uh ocean avenue in santa monica and literally you step outside you look left and it's sand and ocean a block and a half down right there so that that for me just the office location is often served it has this like therapeutic vibe to it because i can you know after lunch or something i can go take a walk on the beach for like 30 minutes and just forget you know, stuff that's going on. But even on a bigger point, and you and I have talked about this, is like, for me, when I, when I leave the office and I look and see the ocean and the sand, and it's like, wow, I'm looking out. It's not just water, it's the Pacific Ocean. And the closest thing is Asia. And for me, what that does, it like helps to put a few things in perspective. It's like, look, regardless of what happened during the day in that office, it's really insignificant in the grander scheme. Right, that's real. Yeah. That's real. Yo, like to anyone out there listening right now, find your spot, man, wherever it is that allows you to feel at peace and to like decompress. You know, for me growing up in LA, I had a, I had a big cousin, my big cousin Manish. Mm-hmm. He used to always take me out to the beach when I was a, when I was a little kid, mm-hmm. seven years older than I was. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't fell in love with the beach when I got older. I didn't start taking the bus out there myself. And I always would go to the beach. And black folks in particular grew up in LA not all, but disproportionately, like, we would stay, you know what I'm saying? We wouldn't come west of the 405. Right, like, right, we would right. stay kind of inland. Just not, there, there are black folks who were born in L.A. who just never go to the beach. And I was I was blessed to have a big cousin who opened me up to that. And then I just got comfortable. Like, look, I'm going to go out here and the police used to look at me crazy, you know. Bruh. You know, folks in the neighborhood would look at me crazy. None of them ever wanted to run up, though. Mm. But that's a whole other topic. And I would just keep going because the beach brought me so much peace. And I would go there and just focus on me and just like chill at the ocean or whatever. And it was good for my mental health because being being black is hard, man. Be all wound up and ready to like knock somebody Bro. in their mouth. Man. And you go to the beach and just get you to a good centered spot. So find your spot, whatever it may be. The the thing that's wild about what you just said, right? About like, you know, black folks oftentimes unfortunately kind of stay and don't get to explore other things it's wild because that you know you see that in a bunch of other cities too right like even in new york there are cats who you know grew up whether it's in like brooklyn or you know up in the south bronx who've never seen you know the water who've never like you know you just stay in your area and it's wild because i can't fully fault them because it's part of this like larger system of socialization that makes you feel like look you belong right there and don't you step out that box, which is wild because, yep. I mean, especially you know, given the conversation we're talking about. <laughs> right. It's, it's yeah. such a wild thing. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, well, everywhere you go, you get the, you get them looks, right? Yeah. And it's like learning how to uh, ignore them, you know, and just keep it pushing. There's, I think something is, 
Like one thing that came to mind, I remember my homegirl, Yvonne uh, Camacho. Mm-hmm. She's a Mexican sister. And we used to work together uh, when I was when I was living back in L.A. for a hot second. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and she mm-hmm. saw me walking one day. We were, going to, we were going to get lunch. And she saw me walking. And I saw this brother I didn't know. And I gave him the head nod. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she was like, do you know him? You know, the whole thing. I was like, nah, look, man. Everywhere black people go, particularly <laughs> black men, we're just, people are just throwing us bad energy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so when we see another black person, it's just like, yo, it's like, let me give you a little bit of positivity mm-hmm. while you're out here. This thing that's subconsciously developed. Then I told her, as a matter of fact, Blackish has actually done an episode on us. I was mad when they did it because I liked that it. it was something that we knew and we kept to ourselves. Mm-hmm. It was our own like little secret. Mm-hmm. I was like, but if you want to understand it, go check it out. And she went and watched Blackish. And that's all we talked about for like the next week <laughs> was was the head nod and like how it was a thing and she had never knew it was a, a thing. Real but, thing. But that's but the, the opposite of the head nod, the reason why the head nod exists, I think is the reason why black people stay in their area. Mm. Right. Because it's like when you leave, everyone's making you feel uncomfortable. You can right. tell the people don't want you there. Yep. But I got to a point to where I was like, look, man, I'm gonna get what I want, man. Yeah. I ain't doing nothing wrong to nobody. You know, I ain't I ain't gonna be reckless and just try and go hang out in the middle of like, you know, KKK land. There's nothing there that I'm looking for. But right, right. If if I want to go to the beach, man, in Hermosa and a few people are going to be looking at me funny because I'm in Hermosa and I look like I'm clearly from South LA, like, that's their problem. I'm man, about to go enjoy this. God beach. made this ocean a beach for everybody. Right. Keep it a buck. So, all right, man, let's just take a step back. So you're, yeah. you're at Twitter. Yeah. Balling, doing your thing. Like, you're helping Toyota, Lexus, Mazda, use Twitter to, 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 to get their ends, right? Mm-hmm, to secure mm-hmm, the bag. Mm-hmm. You step out, you know, you're out there on the beach. You've come out here. You, you have this amazing wife that you're building a life with in L.A. Mm-hmm. You don't just end up in this place. So, like, help, <laughs> help, people, help people understand. And you got this, you got this funny sounding name, Alan Mervay. <laughs> <laughs> like, where, like, where where are you from? Like, let's, yeah, let's, yeah. let's get back to like how you became you. The origin story. <laughs> yeah, the origin story. We gonna have a movie out of this? <laughs> <laughs> it'll be a short film. Oh nah. dang, shade. Okay. Nah, I'm just playing. Nah, nah, nah. It'll be, nah, it'll nah, be nah, a, nah. yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, the last name is French. Uh, my family's Haitian, right? So I, you know, I, I shared kind of you know growing up in New York. So I am a combination. I like to think of myself a combination of really three three cultures, right? So I'm Haitian Canadian American. Um, my I'm Haitian by blood because my parents are Haitian immigrants. I'm Canadian by birth because I was born in Montreal and American by just upbringing because I grew up in New York. And so um, I mentioned my parents are Haitian immigrants. They both you know, had their fascinating journey to this country, which I didn't even learn until I was older. And that's a whole other conversation. Um, and uh, my pops left Haiti and came here. My mom left Haiti, went to Montreal. They had known each other in Haiti and they eventually reunited. I was born, grew up in New York uh, as, you know, this kid with the with the funny name who, when he moved here, didn't know how to speak English because French was my first language. <laughs> and, uh, Why he talk like that? On the show. <laughs> yeah, I would have been on you. You know, so doing that and then growing up in, in New York. So I grew up in uh, the Burbs outside of New York in this uh, Haitian community in, in White Plains. Um, and, and it was like interesting because like, you know, a whole separate other conversation is like understanding like immigration and migration paths. I'm just always fascinated how somehow, you know, a bunch of Haitians left Haiti and somehow found these specific pockets, right? So there's like groups in mm. White Plains and Yonkers and stuff like that. So I grew up in that community um, and then uh, went to school in White Plains, which I didn't realize thought was, you know, probably in college that there's a lot of money in White Plains. Uh, and so I'm like navigating this Haitian, Canadian, French, but also American and, right. you know, rolling with uh, a lot of white people in my classes. Um, I, I had the good fortune of uh, two parents who really stressed education a lot. Um, at the time, I felt like they stressed it too much not because I dislike education, just because the way it yeah. got expressed to me. Uh, right, right, right. You know, I, 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 you've heard me joke a bit about, you know, our parents were so strict. I, I, I talked about college as my freedom from Haitian bondage. 
but uh <laughs> right so so grew up in that environment so I, it's like this interesting mix of just like experiences um went to college went to duke undergrad down in north carolina uh i really wanted to you know from all those experiences i knew that look there was a piece of like look this coming of age 18 i need some distance from the fam so i can just be me uh i was uh, blessed to be gifted and you know did well in school so i wanted to go to a top school and i really love sports so that's how you know duke ended up on the mix uh right, went to right. duke yeah yeah, yeah. And yeah, and that that makes that makes perfect sense. But let me let me hop in for a quick second. Let's go yeah. back to like growing up in White Plains, right? Yeah. Because there's a there's a lot that you're trying to figure out and navigate there. Yeah. So in general, you have this tension of being immigrants from all over the world. Yeah. When kids are being raised in the in the in the new country, there's a tension of like how do you how do we keep our mm old country roots. So in your in your instance, how do we keep our Haitian roots mm-hmm. and we're raising this kid in America? But then in, in White Plains, New York in particular. Yeah. But then you add in this extra layer of you got like this Canada piece that kind of got laid in there. So now you, you speak in French yourself. <laughs> so like you're, you're having to navigate a bunch of different cultures. Like even within your house, you're navigating a bunch of different cultures. Yeah. You're leaving a house. Yeah. You're navigating different culture. So what, what was that like for you growing up in, in grade school? Yeah. Yeah, man. So it, it's, it's, you know, you, you kind of had it right on the head of like, you know, just, just navigating these different cultures. But the weird thing is like when you're that age, when you're that kid, you don't have the language or capacity to understand that that's what's going on. So you're just kind of like frustrated with all these things. Right. And so um, there's the piece of like, okay, I'm learning to adjust to, being a kid in this space and country that speaks English, I still remember somehow vividly this, this, uh, the first place where we lived, um, there was a kid who lived, uh, in the building, not the building, the floor above us. It was like this five unit, uh, spot. And I wanted to play basketball with him and I didn't really have the words in English. So I just had this basketball, this little yellow basketball. And I still remember, I'm like looking at this kid pointing to the basketball and just saying, yes, yes. And like, that, that is wild because that story was so long ago, but I still vividly remember it, right? So it's like stuff like that, like, you know, learn to navigate. Yeah. The cool thing is I came at a very young age, right? So I moved here when I was five. So that gave me the opportunity to, you know, learn the language and get up to speed yeah. while I'm still very malleable and, you know, still learning a lot. And so... I think that experience in grade school, I think one of the biggest challenges and tensions was navigating the different cultures, but then also navigating the different American cultures, right? Because right. I'm like, okay, this is this, this America thing. But as I progressed through grade school, I had the good fortune of being in advanced classes and, and, and honors classes. And unfortunately those are classes where there's not a lot of us in there right and so right then there's the tension of like you know from other black folk is like oh are you white you oreo and then you know i'm haitian too and like in the 90s it was um you know there was a lot going on in haiti the u.s was in there um yeah intervening and that's a whole other conversation and so you know there was also hiv aids so there's just like you know, this association of like, oh, you Haitian have AIDS. So I'm like navigating all these things. And again, I'm a kid, so I don't have the language or capacity to understand that. That's me looking back. Right. And so it was interesting because like, sure, it was a lot of uh, stress and tension as a kid. But now looking back, I think one of the powerful things about it is that it gave me a bit of a foundation of knowing how to navigate different spaces and make it through and just kind of not change who I am, but understand what window of me to, to show or to connect with somebody on in order to get something done, build a relationship or move forward. So it, again, it's like really one of those weird things that when you're a kid, you're like, this sucks. And then when you, you know, get older, you're like, oh, okay, I guess that was somewhat useful. <laughs> right, yeah, well, I mean, I, I routinely say like, I would never want my kids to grow up how I grew up. Yeah. But I, there's so much value. Yeah. The fact that I grew up that way and made it, right, yeah. and didn't get caught up in all the things one could get caught up in, or didn't have, you know, I didn't get shot, I didn't have any of that mm. stuff happen 
to me. So then therefore I can reap the benefits now. So I see the value, I see the intrinsic yeah. value in it. And the other point I wanted to make, you know, and then listen to your story in particular about your childhood and having to navigate four or five different cultures all at once as like a, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine year old um, is we often think of folks in the suburbs, black folks in particular, we think of, you know, uh, he grew up in the burbs, mm-hmm. right? And we think it's, you know, you just had like this cakewalk, but now nah, you grew up, <laughs> you grew up in the quote unquote burbs, but in like a Haitian community of a bunch of, you know, Haitian immigrants. And then you're having to walk through all these different spaces that's bringing about a whole lot of stress and frustration and discrimination. So you got everyone thinking that you have HIV AIDS just because you're Haitian, right? Mm-hmm. You got your parents and their whole cultural tensions that you have to deal with. You're trying to figure out like how do I become, you know, not become, but like integrate into like Black American society, but then you're taking all these classes with all these white kids. It's just everywhere you go, you're kind of like not really at home. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it was just interesting just being able to listen to uh, your story and have it flipped on his head because I remember point blank like we we had like an open at least you know growing up in, in LA we had an open resentment for, for folks who came from the suburbs just yeah. it, was, it, was, it was jealousy right because we just assumed their life was so good and our life was so hard and our life was hard and not because of something we did to deserve it it just was Bruh. but you know, you, you know f- folks got different upbringing it's wild because like I didn't realize like what was associated with suburbia to suburbia to that degree till I went to college, right? Because like in college, you mean people from all over, right? And like you know, do you know predominantly white institution with a lot of kids of paper, right? A lot of rich kids, right? And so you know, getting to these conversations and like uh, I remember a friend had like was was looking through these lists of like you know, uh, zip codes or counties or cities or whatever that, you know, richest cities or whatever, or cities with like, you know, a lot of wealthy, whatever it may be. And White Plains is on the list. I was like, wait, what? And it's funny because, <laughs> right. you know, looking back again, I'm, I'm, I'm this kid who's navigating a bunch of stuff. I don't necessarily have the bandwidth or just presence of mind to kind of fully see what's going on. I look back and I'm like, oh yeah, there was a lot of money in White Plains. There, there was a lot of money there, right? But it's like, that wasn't my existence. Like, I grew up, you know, elementary school, middle school, I was on free lunch, right? Like, I'm, I'm not right. <laughs> that other side of town where, where cats like it. So it's, it's, it's interesting kind of, you know, seeing that those associations, but even navigating that still, even when I went to Duke, where there was like just assumed belief that like, oh, you, know, you from the birds, you, you, you from White Plains, you got it. I'm like, nah, bro, you, you, you should hit the bursar and see what my long tab is looking like. <laughs> Right, right, right. That's that's real. But you know, everyone always. It's. It, I think it's not everyone always. I just think it's convenient and easy to make assumptions. Yeah. And uh, I think it. I personally enjoy stopping and trying to understand like what's going on beneath the surface. And yeah. With people and in any different situations, I think that's where a lot of learning can happen and take place. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah. So, so you navigate it. You know the white plane situation and you hinted at, you know, your parents were, were, they made sure that you understood the value of education. And so you, you delivered, right. You, yeah. you took these advanced classes through grade school, you land yourself at Duke. What was your experience like at Duke? Cause you know, especially with people assuming that you got paper or whatever, like I could, that could be a whole other yeah yeah thing where you're like in this place where it's just like private school with a, with a bunch of, privileged kids, for lack of a better term, um, go to get educated. But then you're coming in as a black dude. What was that like for you? Yeah, I mean, the thing that was kind of cool about Duke, so first there was the piece of like, okay, I felt like I finally had my wings, right? I'm like, okay, in this space, you know, 18, finally get to, you know, see what's out here. Um, So there's that piece. But in an interesting way, man, like Duke was, was fascinating in the sense that it really, exposed me to more of the world and also um, I think helped me see a more positive mirror on myself in the sense that like Duke was was the first time that I was around a lot of other black people who are really smart and and let me be clear a lot I'm not saying that like Duke is swimming with black people but there was more black people right. who were in you know, in these smart spaces than I had ever experienced before. Um, and it was also black people from all walks of life. 
on top of that, the piece that I found pretty fascinating was that there were a good number of Black folks who were also Caribbean and African. And then I met a number of Haitian Black people, right? And so, like, it really kind of recalibrated my understanding of what it meant to be Black, what it meant to be Haitian. I'll be honest, like, being around other young, smart Haitian kids with me at Duke was like the beginning of like me having even, you know, starting to turn the page and having more pride about my Haitian ancestry and, and Haitian culture, right. right? Because of like all the different messages I was receiving, you know, growing up, not in the home, obviously, but, you know, in, right. you know, school and all that other stuff. So that part was like really cool. Um, but on like a, a more real thing, it was fascinating because like I have my own challenges at Duke, right? So like, okay, I grew up, I was smart. And so I did really well. I was like one of the top kids uh, academically, but then I roll up to Duke and everybody's a top kid academically, right? So I would imagine it's probably how, you know, some cats feel when they go from being Mr. New York in high school and they go to D1 or you're that dude in D1 and you go to the NBA. It's like, oh, everybody gets buckets. Right. And so um, there was that, right? So I had used, I've been used to how I can do my thing and still accomplish. And I was like, I, I can't lie. I was caught up in the new freedom. So I actually struggled at the gate at, at Duke, right? And um, I actually ended up on probation and suspended uh, for a semester because of my, my uh, sem first semester mess ups um, and was able to come back and actually, you know, catch up and actually graduate on time. And so it's interesting because like that time at home, during that uh you know suspension semester i it was like it was almost like the rubber band snapping back right it's like i felt like i got my freedom through right. full fault of my own that freedom was gone and i had gotten a taste of that freedom but now i'm back home and so that time i think helped to add it was like a good balance of like okay i got a taste of freedom but i'm back to double down a discipline and like coming back to duke and kind of still being able to do what I need to do to graduate on time, I feel like that helped me kind of really start to sharpen that resilience and that just like, mm. just, you know, just focus on what's necessary, just get it done. I can't say it was complete when I graduated, but I feel like that was like a good kind of training ground to have the mess ups, to figure out how to come back from the mess ups and get that done. And then also had the supportive community around me, right? Because like I said, it was the first time that I felt like I had a really good crew of Black peers that I messed with, right? right Cast right, that on right. my folks. And a lot of them I'm still really good friends with now. I think that I think it's really instructional, though, if you think about, I think oftentimes we look at successful people and we just notice the success, mm -hmm. right? We don't realize the missteps, the falters, the failures, and I even saw something actually, uh, I was on LinkedIn this morning and then Kayla Matthews, another one of our classmates, mm, yep, yep. she's like, she's killing it in the pod, yeah. podcast game. Those yep. of you guys who are deep in the podcast game, check out Side Hustle Pro. This check it out. Like, she is like crushing the game. But yep. she, had, she had posted something this morning that basically said, failure is an event. It's, it's not yeah. a defining character trait, mm. right? So mm. oftentimes, you know, we, we have this false concept of success. We think that successful people um, never fail, which is BS, <laughs> right? They, they, you, you learn the most, I think, in failures to prepare yeah. you for success. Um, but so you go through this, this situation, freedom gets snapped back. You go through the sus suspension semester and you come back and you get on your grind um, you you tap into your resolve, and I think I heard you say you graduated on time from Duke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, one of the things for me was like, look, I messed up, uh, but I am determined to just still. I mean, it, it's weird, right? So like, part of the upbringing, I gravitated to sports. One, because there's like this space that I felt like is just like on the merits of what you can get done to be successful and very inspirational, you know, obviously the, the MJ era. And so I really gravitated to MJ, right? And like his resolve of just like pushing through and overcoming whatever slights either self-caused or, you know, externally caused 
to just like push done. And so for me, I think some of that kicked in is like, yo, okay, we down 25 going into the fourth. You will get this W though. Like, what do we need to do to overcome all the mess ups of the first three quarters to get this W? And I think that was part of it, part of the motivation for me. Um, But then also again, like, I mean, like just having like a dope community of peers to, to encourage me and support me in that. And also not ostracize me because I messed up. Right. And still accept me for, you know, what I did. Um, yeah, so that that was it, it's funny because like at the time, I think it's with like everything that at the time you don't realize the magnitude of it or all of that. Um, but now looking back and even having you know friends who who were there with me at the time were like, man, you know, I, I, I really admire that you did that. It's just like you know, inspiring, whatever. Um, yeah, it was it was I don't know it was it was I think back and it's like wow that was really one of the really formative experiences in in developing who I am and, and kind of starting to shape just perseverance, resilience, focus. And, you know, you've seen it, that, that comes out in different times. <laughs> yeah. <And> yeah. That, <laughs> that's where, that's, that's part of where it comes from. Yeah, that's real. I mean, you know, it's like, it, it, there's so many different analogies in life, but if you ain't, if you ain't really been through nothing, like you don't actually know what you're made of. Right. Nah, and man. I was actually talking with my brothers last night. We were talking about high school football randomly. And, one of the things like I brought up, it's a it's a total like uh, stretch, but I I I see it as one of the parallels to like having to go through something. I remember yeah. summer football in LA Unified, we didn't get to have pads like the private schools did. Like we, yeah. we couldn't get pads before a particular date. So when we were in shorts and t-shirts all summer, everybody was an all-American. Mm-hmm. Everybody was chirping. Everybody had a lot to say. <laughs> and I was like, I, you know, you know, was, you know me. I'm always running my mouth. Right, but, right, right, right. Um, but then I remember we were in line to get our pads, and we was gonna start hitting drills the next day. Like, folks was real quiet. Like, there, there was about half the team that felt like getting their pads felt like a death sentence. Mm-hmm. You know, because now you're about to actually go through something on the football mm-hmm. field. We, mm-hmm. You're about to get tested and see, like, all right, when we go from running you know, drills and shorts and t-shirts, that's one thing, right? And you run up to somebody and you give a little two-hand touch. Very different than we got on full pads now. Yeah. You 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 are about to actually be tested with some some physical pain and difficulties. And are you gonna have the resilience to push through? And you know, some folks did, some some people didn't. Now, you know, football might not be, you know, the the best analogy people might get caught up in like, I don't want my kids to play football. Fair. I'm not even arguing that point. Right. But I do think there's there's something to be learned in life when on paper or when things are, you know, nice and safe, like everybody is, is all American. Like what happens when you get into an actual difficult situation, right? You're faced with it. You're faced with adversity. What do you do then? That's the growth right there. That, I mean, it's again, it sucks when you're going through it and sucks when you're in it. And like, it's always the hindsight, you know, you look back, that's when you realize, I think one, you know, two things one there's like a a a quote and an analogy i'll say the analogy first it's like working out right like people who have these like big muscles or these resilient muscles or just like who are just like really sharp athletically it's the pain that causes that when you lift weights that's your muscle fibers tearing and it's the tearing and the rebuilding that makes them stronger right and that's that's It's it's and it's like a weird metaphor for life though. It's like the pain sucks. It's like, oh, I want to avoid the pain. Yeah, you can avoid the pain. And you could be, you know, 35 scrawny skinny and get blown over by a 10 mile an hour wind, right? Like right. that can happen too. But the right. quote that that I like to think about every now and then, um, that I hope close it goes, and I hope I don't butcher it. It goes, a ship is always safe at shore or at the shore, but that's not mm. what it was built for. Speak on right. it. Right. So you that's, need oof. to get out there. That's that's how you build your cred, your resolve, your capability. Man, hey, you 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 take an offer this morning because you out here <laughs> preaching. I'm like, bro, what can I you know, you on the cash app demo? Like that's that's real. I think for for me, I think it's really important that uh in speaking, you know, to, to black men in particular, we gotta get comfortable working hard. Yeah. In things that aren't familiar to us. Yeah. You know. Because if we if we stay just doing what we know and what's immediately in front of us, I mean, disproportionately, you know, we live um, in economically depressed areas. So then yeah. we're only going to try things 
that are available to us in these economically depressed areas. Whereas there are other things out there to explore. Not that we need to stay gone for a community, but we can go and right. explore and figure out other ways of doing things and then bring that back to the community. Because the community right. is not, right. like, you know, perpetually just like living in the hood is not our natural state. Like mm-hmm. God didn't make us to live this way. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I think about when you start talking about, you know, a shift and like it's not designed to, to stay at the dock. It's designed to go out there and navigate and do things. I think that we are amazingly tough and resilient. But I also think that we sometimes keep ourselves, and even going back to the beach conversation we had earlier, we keep ourselves in these particular spaces, whether it's because people are giving us, you know, dirty looks and oftentimes very real cops are harassing us when we go outside our neighborhood. But nonetheless, we have to go out and navigate. We need to have that that courage and that uh, vulnerability even to go out yeah. and see what the world has to offer for us to, to grow into full beings. Man, vulnerability, man, that's a real, real thing, man. Cause like the reality is everything you said is spot on, right? That like, we do have to get out there. We do have to put ourselves out there. We do have to stretch and flex, you know, and also true is that that's hard. That requires you to be down to leave much of what you've known. It requires yep. you to, you know, leave the support structures and safe spaces that you have, it requires you to say, you know what, okay, I'm gonna go into the storm of this, you know, this this the system and these places that often aren't not just not built for me, but sometimes built to actively work against me. And it's hard and it really requires, you know, a lot of vulnerability to to take those risks. You know, even more importantly, I think a lot of vulnerability to be able to ask for help um, right. and just, you know, leverage resources, you know, whether that's for, you know, any capability, whether it's like financial. Uh, physical, you know, a big one, mental and emotional help, like, because it's hard. It is hard. I mean, we, we can, to your point, like, you know, you sit back in your seat, wherever you're at now, it's like, all right, cool, but the journey is hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. it's also the reward, too, right? It's like, yeah. you know, it, it, it is, um, it is so worth it and like we often mm-hmm. look at again and we look at people when they're in this place of success but it's like what is all the work that they did I mean the, what's, yeah. the, what's the classic Drake line you wasn't with me shooting in the gym right like right there, there, there's a reason why Kobe's jumper was wet <laughs> you know what I mean <laughs> he didn't just roll out of bed <laughs> like he was in the gym putting in that work so it's like yeah but that that work yeah it's gonna be hard yeah yeah it's gonna hurt there's gonna be tough days but you know you got to you got to keep pushing. And that's kind of really what it's all about. And it also makes the victory that much more sweet. Yeah. So bringing it, bringing it back to you though. So you go through, you know, your, your tough days, you, you, you buckle down, you knock it out at Duke, you come through, you, you graduate and then you go out and uh, you start your career. What, what did you do coming out of Duke and what, and what, what was the path that you set yourself <laughs> on? Yeah, man. So, I went in to do, I got in as an engineering student, you know, at the first year, it wasn't about that engineering life. I did it because, you know, I was good at math and science and, you know, my parents, you know, I did say they're Haitian immigrants. And so, you know, in their eyes, Dr. Laura, engineer, I don't know what you're talking about if it ain't those three. So I said, okay, right. I'll, I'll just do engineering, but I wasn't about it after the year. And so eventually uh, discovered the sports industry and 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 not in no Christopher Columbus type of way discovered, but like discovered it for myself <laughs> in the sense that like all I knew was you know you playing, you coaching, you know, or you owed the team. But there was like a career day, and there was this woman who uh, worked at the NBA, and I was like, oh wow, I love sports, and this looks like a way to you know build a career. And so, long story short, I ended up you know jumping into sports. Um, the 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 additional kind of preamble I'll add, which is I think critical to my story or to my journey is junior year at Duke, there was like a black alumni function. And I happened to meet this woman who was an alum uh, from Duke, who was in New York, had a conversation and, you know, shared about the sports interests and stuff like that. And she took a liking and interest to me and we hit it off. And she was immensely, immensely critical to my ability to make that jump into sports. Her name is Stacy Gray. I'll never forget her. She was, you know, at, at uh, 
at our wedding. I think you probably met her as well. Um, she was a lawyer, had her own small practice in New York. And one of the reasons why I appreciate her for a number of reasons, actually, I can't just say one. One is the fact that, you know, she took the time to take me under the wing. I don't even think I necessarily, you know, I talk about this like seeking help. I don't even think I necessarily explicitly asked for help, but she saw something in me. It was like, okay, brother, you need some help. Let me take you uh, under the wing and, and, and we'll, 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 we'll work. The second thing, which is probably equally as important is man, when I tell you, she told me about myself, bruh. <laughs> I mean, it, and, and in a healthy, loving way, right? Like, I, I think right, and and, and I think Stacy had w- one of the biggest influences in how I approach whatever I do now in terms of thinking about just like excellence and pushing to like have all the T's uh, crossed and and I's dotted and stuff like that. And but the third thing that she did right, the so first was take me under her wing. Second was like honest, true, tell me about myself. And like this is what it takes, and these are the areas where there are gaps and you think it's this and, you know, let me just humble you a little bit and kind of tell you how the world actually works. And I think the thing that really brought it home was the third point is she gave me access and she connected me with uh, classmates and peers in her network that worked in sports and other folk that were connected to sports. And so during my summer between junior and senior year, I actually uh, worked under, um, one of her classmates and, and a guy I also called a friend, Nick Blatchford, uh, who opened, who had started this, this or called New Heights, which was working in Harlem and Washington Heights back in New York, trying to, you know, help black and brown kids come up by fusing sports, leadership and academics. And mm-hmm. Nick in turn, you know, introduced me to a bunch of folk. And so that really started to build a muscle of like, okay, I mentioned the sports thing, found the plug, Stacy really put me on and gave me that, uh, that, that boost. And so when I came back senior year, man, my focus was like, yo, I'm, I'm, I'm addicted to the sports thing. I, I, I want it. And so right. I you know, flew to different career fairs and kind of connected with a bunch of people where they're reaching out um, by email to just like get myself out there and land a gig. And I, I must add, it wasn't because I was swimming in cash. I you know, got caught up, got a credit card. And so I used that right. to, to, to fund this stuff. Uh, and so, you know, that's a whole other conversation about like, you know, financial decisions ended up working out, uh, I had two gigs, one with the Pacers, one with the Bulls. I chose the one, uh, with the Pacers, you know, the long story, the long story short there is that everything that was the 21 year, year old black kid in me was like, yo, go to the shy It's Chicago, shy town, right. MJ, the Bulls. But, you know, everything that, Stacy had helped me develop and understand was like, okay, you got to think about the career journey destination. And this org had this network uh, that could really connect me. So I jumped into sports, worked in sports for, man, five years before I went to business school. Um, It was, you know, first year in Indianapolis was was definitely a grind because I knew nobody there um, and struggled out the gate, but was able to uh, push through and do really well. Uh, the gig was, it was actually a temporary gig. It was like eight to 12 months inside sales, you know, prove you can hang. And then at that point, we either give you a, a, a more permanent full-time role with our team, or we connect you to one of these other teams, this network that we have. Uh, and so I landed a second role with the Nets back home. At the time, they were the New Jersey Nets. Uh, and so did that for a couple of years. But, you know, this love of sports that I had, you know, for anybody who's listening or who is in the industry, especially you coming out, man, don't go into sports because you want to make money because <laughs> it, right. it ain't there, <laughs> like, right. at all. Um, but I yeah, think just to hop in for really quick, I think it's important, yeah. especially early in your career, mm-hmm. to invest in skills. Yeah. Especially if there's skills that are laddering towards a particular expertise that will then turn into being like your lifelong profession. Yeah. Right. Because you, there's, there's plenty of time to like make money. And I remember I made certain moves where I went lateral or even went backwards. I once quit a full-time job. Yeah. To, to, <laughs> without going, because this is, this is your story, but I quit a full-time job so I can go and work or go back to school full-time because I dropped out and I wanted to 
go back and hurry up and finish my undergrad as quickly as possible so I can then re-enter the workforce at this different level. And a lot of people didn't understand what I was doing. I was like, like mm-hmm. I was investing. I was investing in something as a part of this longer term thing. I wasn't making short term decisions because I was still young enough to 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 deal with the consequences of those short term like inconveniences yeah, for yeah, long term yeah. benefits. And the exact yeah. reason I'm in the position I, I'm in right now is because of um, those short term opportunities that I passed up on. Yeah, yeah. And man, you touched on. Just right there, you touched on a couple of things that really hit kind of my journey, right? Because, like, I went into sports in sales, and, you know, I'm at Duke, so I have a bunch of peers who are going to, like, this banking job, this consulting job, this other job, this law school, med school, either about to either immediately making crazy paper or setting up for even crazier paper. And it was interesting because, like, you know, taking a sales gig, it wasn't sexy at all. But what I knew, what I gathered is that, like, if you can put up numbers and put money in the bank for an org, you gonna always have a job. Every business needs money in the bank and numbers put up, right? And so for me, it was like that foundation, like, cool, build the sales skills. Uh, but then even to, <laughs> to what you mentioned about quitting a job, man. So I graduated Duke with near six figures of debt. I jump into the sports industry making, I mean, trash paper. Um, and so <laughs> eventually I'm like, man, and then I moved, you know, to the New York, you know, back home to New York. So like not even home, but like to, to, I moved to the, to the region, which is, you know, at the time, the most expensive in the country and just stuff didn't add up. And so at the time, my solution in my mind, which felt correct was like, man, I'm frustrated, not making enough money. And, um, uh, I just need something more stimulating. So I'm quit. It made sense at the time. It made full sense at the time. Quit a job. Right, 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 right. <laughs> and so, um, the 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 when you think about like talk about storms, the thing that sucked about that is that happened in April of 2008, which was the beginnings of the Great Recession. So here I was thinking I had built a network and I'll be cool. I quit and I'm gonna find another job recession hit and I'm in New York area. So stuff starts to fall. Right. And so I was actually unemployed for about five, six months. Right. Took odd jobs and stuff like that. And so I eventually uh, landed back in sports. I tried to get to the marketing side of the business and got into that side of the business. But the thing that's fascinating is like, I think at every step of my journey, uh, whether growing up Duke, you know, this time between Duke and business school, there's been, this like at the time unfortunate situation that happens and it's used for my good to make me stronger and better to where I am now. So like, you know, after while working in sports, I figured out, you know, I want to, at the time I wanted to work in sports long-term, but felt like there was an opportunity for the industry to be more strategic like other businesses. So like I wanted to go to business school work in non-sports for a bit and come back to sports at a higher level, which is what, you know, made me apply to business school. And man, it's funny, right? Cause like one, you know, because I had my challenges at Duke, I had to make sure I knocked out, you know, the entrance exam for B school. So I went back into that grind mode. Right. So I was like, you know, studying, I'd get up at five in the morning, study for two hours and then go do my full 12 hour day of work was able to knock that test out but when I got the the and that's all a bit of preamble to the point I want to make is that when I got to business school it was fascinating because everything that I had been through whether it was like growing up Duke working in sports making no money you know being unemployed twice during the great recession you know just really bad finances you know I'm in this space with other really talented academically bright folk what it made yeah. me realize is that those challenges and that pain and that stress made me less stressful in that really stressful environment. Like, right. Cause at that point you, you're battle tested, right? It's right. Like the, the, was it the, the hardest steel is forged in the hottest fire. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's like you, you, you've been through some things at that point. Yeah. And so, so it's, so it's interesting. So you, you go through all of this, you go through this, you make this great decision in 2008 <laughs> to, to quit your gig, right? And then, boom, great recession happened. You know, worst economic downturn since the Great Depression. And yeah. 
who knows what's going to come now with this COVID situation? Yeah. That's kind of TBD. But you're in the, you're in the midst of you know this pretty intense economic period. You grind, you grind, you grind, and then you look up. You know, three years later, four years later, you're enrolling in. Uh, it's three years later. You're enrolling in one of the best business schools in the world. Yeah. And so, won't you really quickly help us understand? what that experience was like for you and really like what was what was the the best thing you got out of that experience outside of getting to be my roommate like what what was the what was the best thing you, you got out of your business school experience? you mean you getting to be my roommate <laughs> yeah, potato, go ahead uh honestly right so like look the the objective gains were you know this this wonderful education a great network and this huge you know this this great you know salary bump because you know, I knew given the the money I was making in sports, anything I did in business school, you know, I'd be making more money. But I think the biggest gain for me was perspective and confidence, man. Because business school, as you know, in itself is a stressful environment, right? You know, high stakes, yeah. lots of competition. But you know, Ross is a place where that competition isn't toxic. Um, and you know, you're you're it's a really compressed experience where you're trying to accomplish a lot challenging professionally and academically to, you know, secure this gig. And I came in, you know, honestly, when I came in and being transparent, I still had a little bit of insecurity of my Duke experience. I was like, man, you know, can I, can I hang academically because of how I came out the gate? So the, one of the most wonderful things for me, especially after finishing that first year was like one, like killing it academically. It was like, man, I got this. Like all, that, right. that little voice in my head talking about all this, psh, nothing. But the, right. you know, the, in terms of the journey in business school was fascinating observing my peers, you know, and them kind of going through ups and downs of stresses. For me, given the journey I had coming into business school, I was like, man, the worst thing that happens from this experience is I come out with a six-figure job that I hate. Um, <laughs> in the right. grand scheme of things, I think that's pretty swell. I mean, right, right, right. when I think about the fact that like, literally two generations ago, my granddad in Haiti was a farmer who had 12 kids and had to pick and choose who got to school versus who stayed on the farm. And two generations later, I'm out here where my downside is a six-figure job. I hate, I'm kicking it. I'm chilling. I'm good. Not kicking it like not doing anything, but like like yeah. emotionally, it just gave me yeah. this confidence that I could really push through anything and be good. Like I'm right. good. So that's probably right. the yeah, when you realize where you come from and like where you're at, it's like, oh, you could you could quit doubting yourself and actually look at mm. verify verifiable results, like hard data, like, oh, this is where I'm at, this is what I've achieved. And you can you can use that and put that in your confidence reservoir to keep moving forward. Yeah. I respect it, man. I respect it. Yo, so before I let you get out of here, yeah, yeah. You got four you got four questions you gotta you gotta answer for me. Okay. And um and we're gonna do these rapid fire. The okay. First of which is uh, we always now we we routinely get put in these situations where uh, we're triggered and or or we start to lose our temper and mm-hmm. we come from a culture where you know we're socialized aside to pop somebody in their mouth for certain behaviors. Matter of fact, you should like the idea is you should pop them in their mouth for certain behaviors. Mm-hmm. But that's in broader society, that's not the appropriate way to handle things. So tell me a time when they, and in quotes, they've gone low, when someone has been disrespectful to you and you were triggered, but then you had the wherewithal to take the high road. (laughs) (laughs) That list Uh, is long. Look and, and and look and I'll say this, man. You do you know you know I grew up MJ fan, and I ain't gonna lie, I did inherit some of his petty. So I I remember. Um, right. Yeah. Let, let me let me. I think <laughs> the 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 one. Yeah, and you, and you know that too. <laughs> the yep. one the one yep. that I I think I feel comfortable sharing. Uh, I had a uh, past manager who we did a review. It wasn't a full year review. It was partial year review who gave me some feedback that 
I personally felt was off. Well, personally felt that there was a lot of coded language, but objectively was off in the sense that if I looked at the way said manager assessed and talked about other peers and the manager's own behavior. And so I'm in this session with the feedback and inside that blood is boiling. I mean, like hot, like hot, hot, like, you know, and, you know, everything in me wants to pop off and tell this manager, not just why it's off, but tell this manager about themselves. But, you know, I, 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 Thankfully, had some good training, had some home training, some, some good home training, some good experiences in life that taught me, you know, otherwise there's a long, long game here. And so what I did was, you know, I, I took that feedback. I thanked the manager for sharing the feedback, uh, you know, highlighted that, you know, sure it's you know difficult to gather and, and share feedback and thank them. And, uh, and this was on like a Thursday or Friday, took the weekend to collect my thoughts, took the weekend to... Uh, reach out to some peers just to get some perspective. I'm like, look, the the oftentimes the first reaction you have may not the first reaction you want to have may not be the most productive, right? So let me you know talk to some peers and figure out how can I address this in a productive way. And so like later that next week, I had a session, a follow up session with said manager, and again expressed that thankfulness and kind of shared a bit of like my perspective and kind of where I can help improve on some things and also add some context. And the the cool thing that came about that was uh, two things. One, I think that the manager gained some appreciation and some context for realizing where some of that may have been off. I think, well, not I think I know because the manager expressed this, that they were actually really uh, appreciative of the fact that I just set up that time with them and that, you know, they highlighted that that's not a common thing. And, and the fact that, you know, I can share feedback back to them was a, was a rare thing and they really appreciated that. Uh, and then it also allowed me to not shoot myself in both feet in terms of my journey at that particular company. And so, right. yeah, I mean, and for me, that one is just like, look, man, like people gonna come at your neck. People gonna say stuff that like you feel is off and that's objectively off, but you got to figure out your own balance of like, like you said before, what's the short game versus long game and which one you want to play at that time. The short game would have been pop off, get my good feeling, good vibe, feeling that my rep is good. The long term right. was like, you know, you build, goodwill, you, you build some resilience and you build some capability of, as, uh, as, as Jay says, move, you know, learn how to move in a room full of vultures. Right. It's chestnut checkers. Mm-hmm. Keep it a buck. Mm-hmm. So what's your personal definition of success? It doesn't need to apply to everyone. Yeah. Like how, how are you managing your life? What's your personal definition of success? Yeah. Uh, good question. I think for me, if I think about success, it's about being able to make decisions on my terms and to be at peace with those decisions that I've made, uh, both at the time I make them, but then also looking back, right? So for me, that speaks to like integrity. Like I, I, I you know, mm. I don't, I don't think success for me is really about the money. It's about, you know, can you make decisions that are fully on you, right? And so from a financial perspective, that's like, look, if you have that financial freedom, you can make a decision on your own terms, right? When, how, and if you want. From a personal integrity perspective, if I make a decision and I know that it'll hold up 30 years from now and nobody can throw salt in my name, I've been successful and just living with no regrets. I'd say those three things right there. So, right. yeah, that's what's up. If you were to describe your journey in one word, what would it be? Mm, that's a good one. Um, oof. 
I think I would say learning. Um, yeah, learning, because I feel like I, there's there's always more to learn. There's, you can always refine your craft. And so for me, my career is always about finding those opportunities to learn more. And whether it's in my current job or next job, like being okay saying, look, nah, for the sake of this goal of learning and better my craft, I, I can make calls on like whether this works or not pretty quick. So learning, I, I, you said one word and I gave you 200 <laughs> characters. Saw <laughs> 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 you, you Twitter fingers. <laughs> no, uh, and then with, you know, with all the unique burdens and struggles that come with being black, what do you love most about being a black man? Can I give two answers? Go for it. Yeah, I think there's two things, man. Like, I think one is something you said uh, towards the beginning of the conversation, man. I think it's like this implicit fraternity you're part of, man. Wherever you go, no matter the spaces, you know, if, if you see another black man, like, you know, there's just that head nod, right? It's just, and, and the head nod says nothing and everything at the same time. Uh, and it's just that that shared kind of that 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 bond that solidarity and you just it's a, yeah you just understand i think the second thing so it's the, it's the solidarity piece the second thing that i'd say uh for me i feel like as being a black man navigating the journey in this country when we talk about like battle tested i feel like in any room i show up in overwhelmingly i feel like i am the best athlete in the building i have been mm. tested in more and through more situations than that's at least the way i think about it any yep. of these non-black people who are in that room so that's what i say the solidarity and just like just any room i walk in i feel like i'm the best athlete no. <laughs> man listen um I think that uh, the things that we go through, if we if we're able to process and put in the proper perspective, we can actually, you know, turn it into a positive. Not spin it into a positive, mm -hmm. actually turn it into a positive. I think anything in this right context can be both good and bad. And I think all the weight and the struggle we have to go through is grueling as hell. Yeah. Um, and it bring, it brings about a lot of stress. But you make it through that and get to the other side, especially you do your mental health work. Mm -hmm. um, to make sure you're not walking around dysfunctional, mm -hmm. then going through all that stuff and overcoming it becomes a positive. So, yeah. man, listen, I'm so honored you're willing to hop on here and share your story with everyone. Um, everyone out there who's listening, I appreciate you all. Appreciate you all for tuning in to another episode of Bootstraps. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you can uh, be notified when the next episode comes out and uh, if you're on Instagram follow us at bootstraps podcast